I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Poddleters. I hope you're all doing okay. In this week's episode, I speak to Candice Brathwaite. She is an influencer, sometimes called a mummy blogger, but she doesn't love that term, and an author. Her new book, I, her first book, I should say, I Am Not Your Baby Mother, has just come out and it is absolutely hitting the world by storm. I think it's selling out everywhere. So do make sure to get your hands on that. I am about halfway through it and it is amazing. In this episode, I speak to Candice about what caused her to write the book, dramas of being in the mummy blogging sphere, and also about everything that's going on at the minute in terms of lots of conversations around race, racism, racial inequality, and white privilege. So we kind of touch on that and how that's that's coming across on social media. I really hope you enjoy this episode. And as always, please do rate, review and subscribe. Bye. Hello and welcome to Adulting. Today I'm joined by Candice Brathwaite. Hi. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a long time in the making. I'm dying to get you on. But for people who don't know who you are and what you do, could you give us a little introduction to Candice? Uh, I'm a mother of two. I think many would know me as an influencer, um, first and foremost, a mummy blogger. I'm the founder of an online initiative called Make Motherhood Diverse. And I'm now an author. My debut book's out, been out for a couple of days now. I'm not your baby mother. That's me in a nutshell. You have really kind of taken, especially the social media world, by storm. Like you're, you really offered a different perspective. You say it like it is. You put your boundaries up on your page. There's lots of color there. You talk about money. I love the like forthrightness and it's a real like strength with a woman to be able to be boundaries is something I'm learning about, but, but you really Mm. are so about that on your page. When you started up your page, I know you talk about it a bit in the book, but what was your mindset for this? What was your angle? Did you know that you were going to do make motherhood diverse? What were you really hoping to achieve with your platform and where do you feel like you've got to with it? Oh, I hadn't thought about make motherhood diverse, but I, I, I came to social media completely. And I, I always want to be honest about this because I know some people are like, no, I just got lucky. The aim of the game was always to be self-employed and self-sufficient always. And I saw that social media was a way that I could make revenue and look after my kids. So that for me was always the end goal. The secondary goal was really making waves in terms of diversity and inclusion and trying to really um, just squeeze my way into a very, very white space. I, uh, it was hard and I didn't, I didn't always think the two could go together. There were some points I thought, oh, maybe I should dilute my blackness and I might have an easier time of it. Or there were times I was like, no, if I'm all the way in myself, I then just have to admit defeat and go back to a nine to five. 
So I've been up and down. And I think I, it w- I would say it's only in the last year that everything seems to have gelled together really well. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's not been for the faint hearted. I'll say that. No, and obviously there was lots of other drama that went on with another now kind of ex-mummy blogger that wrote things online. And that was a huge undertaking um, for anyone. Is that is that something you spoke, you have written articles and stuff in Grazia and things, haven't you, about that? And and how do you think that changed people's perspectives? Because I think that was actually reported on in the right way. And that's probably one of the first times we've seen um, a conversation like that really be reported correctly calling out the racism did did you think that do you think it was seen fairly yeah I do I do I think the media online and 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 in print were sensational at taking the situation to task um and what that situation did for those that don't know I was trolled in a racist manner by at the time one of the biggest mummy bloggers in the UK she was going on a chat forum pretending to be someone else and she got rumbled at the back end of 2019 um and what that did is it absolutely blew the lid off this very fake shiny top layer of this influencer space when it comes to parenting and as someone who, you know, came into the space and was very different, and I've always spoken my mind, what I found to be hilarious is in some respects, I've I've come out like the last man standing. And that's only because I've always approached that space and my work with brutal honesty. I do not have a second of my day to waste bullshitting. And so when someone that so many thousands almost millions of women looked up to get turns out to not only be someone else but someone who is then doing horrific things to their own community I think that scandal really made everyone pause and think about the term influencer think about who they're choosing to follow because it's not always what meets the eye that's what that taught me for sure I completely agree. And I think the other space that you're starting to elevate, which is really interesting, is this conversation around women making money. Because often it's the misogyny that people don't like influencers is because it's often women often making a really good income. Whereas you're saying it's not mutually exclusive for me to earn my money from my page and provide really useful information, fun pics to look at, talk about my family. Like those things can coincide. Um, and that's an interesting thing to see. Did you always want to talk about money? I know I want to talk about how you speak about it in the book as well, because you you really thought about motherhood. You really questioned how much this is going to cost me. And oh. you kind of always face finances is head on. You talk about how your parents talked about it with you. I wonder if that's something you want to see more of or if you think that it is getting elevated, especially when it comes to women and, and money. I think it is getting elevated. I follow this great woman. She's been on your podcast, actually, Vestpod. Her, her platform's called Vestpod. Um, I can't remember her name, but Emily. Yes. Um, the way she speaks about money, specifically investing, because I think there is great conversations about equal pay. You know, women fight for your promotion. What is still really thin on the ground is teaching women in plain English how to grow their money. That's what I want to know. I grew up, you know, in my early years, I was all right. And then I went to live with my mum, who, because of bad mental health, was not the greatest with money. I have been the 10-year-old hiding in the bathroom from a bailiff. 
And I just didn't want that for my kids. And I, I learned really early on that in order to make more money, I'd have to be frank about what I wasn't making, what I wanted to make, how I was going to do it. And I think sometimes women don't understand them. The most powerful step you can take is actually saying it and putting it into the atmosphere and writing it down. Like I know people are going to be like, oh my gosh, she's such a weirdo. I have, um, I have an old checkbook and at the top of every year, I write what I want to make in the year on a check and I carry that check in my purse for the entire year. And since I've been doing that, I make that sometimes double, but it, writing those things down and just having that mentality of, um, abundance when it comes to finance is so so important and I do think women are starting to feel that and and they're starting to admit they they want to learn more about making their money grow yeah I love the idea about the check it's one of those things of like manifesting like once you speak into it, you yeah. kind of it's always in the back of your mind and even if you don't realize subconsciously you're working towards it so yeah. I've I guess I've been talking about women generally, but you're, you're a black woman. And so a lot of your work takes that extra level of edge, I guess, because people are constantly going to be scrutinizing you and looking at what you're doing. And this industry, as you said, especially with mummy bloggers, but I, I don't think you love that phrase in relation to yourself. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> um, it's not diverse. And the stories we had, as you talk about in your book, which I'm going to ask you to give insight to for people who don't know what it's about. It was a space very much dominated by middle-class women, middle-class white women who had a very specific set of ideals, a very specific family life, and mm. kind of spoke as if this was universal. Talk to me about where the, the ideas for I'm Not Your Baby Mama came from. Mother, I said mama, that's the American version, isn't it? And, <laughs> and, what, and whether or not being in this industry, is it was that the catalyst to making you write this? Do you think you always had this book in you, even if you weren't an influencer? Um, I would say I always had a book in me before I even opened up an Instagram. I used to work in the marketing department at Penguin Random House. And uh, it was about 2015. The term influencer wasn't yet in vogue. But I, most of my day was spent calling up bloggers, seeing how much they would charge to feature a book on their blog or whatever. And the, the prices they were quoting me, I was literally going home at night thinking, girl, you are in the wrong gig. Like, they make on one post what I make in a week, sometimes even in a month. And so that was really the, the catalyst behind um, trying to get into the social media industry. But all, with always wanting to write a book, like I knew that this was going to come full circle somehow. I just didn't quite know why. Now, when it comes to I'm Not Your Baby Mother, I didn't want to write this book at all at all the motherhood uh, literary market is very saturated as far as I'm concerned a lot of the material that I've been forced to endure for many years was very lifeless it to me a lot of motherhood books don't have a long shelf life uh early in my Instagram years the books were all about getting miraculously drunk um just as you're putting the kids into bed like I, it just I just I just didn't like it and so there were five proposals before I am not your baby mother and for one reason or another they kept getting turned down and Christmas 2018 I was just about to sign a deal but then my commissioning editor got fired and that deal was gone and my my manager was like Candice listen I know you don't want to do it but I feel like everyone wants a motherhood book from you. And, you know, maybe just do it to get that book out there and then you can follow up with the book of your dreams. 
So in 45 minutes, I wrote the most blistering proposal. And literally, I sent it to her and I and my husband. And I was like, I'm not even spell checking that. You guys can do what you want. And they put it together and sent it out. And we had a deal for this book in two weeks. And I was like, oh, okay. Because I felt like I was calling people's bluff for some reason. And so I went one step further. I was like, all right, you want this book so bad? We're going to call it I'm Not Your Baby Mother there. And I went home thinking, right, they'll never fall for that. They were like, cool, we love it. And I was like, oh, shit, right, got to follow through. But then as the writing process happened, it became abundantly clear to me how this was always the book I was supposed to write. And I tell any hopeful writer listening, you know, try not to run from the book that's going to chase you and catch you anyway, because my God, did this one catch me. I love that story. I, I always agree. I think you'll have it with your work as well, being an influence. I'm sure you'll know there's times when you're like, fuck this, it's just not going to happen. And then suddenly someone you've been trying to speak to for like three years will pop up and be like, hey, I'd love to work with you. And you're like, what? I'd just yeah. given up on you. <laughs> um, but I also think you're right. This book does does need to be written. I mean, I have it, as I said, I haven't read the whole thing, but from what I've read and the bits that I've got, it's it's a story that is the kind of story that we need you are talking you talk a lot about race you talk a lot about microaggressions but it's in your voice and it's from your lived experience and it's funny and it's wholesome and it's a true story rather than this painted one-dimensional idea of what it means to be a black woman or what it means to be a black mother it is full of life as you were saying those stories weren't necessarily full of life I think that's what we're missing I think this book will be really instrumental in people understanding race and privilege right now with what's everything that's going on obviously we know that you're you was just saying to me before your page is getting more traffic because people are looking to to educate themselves oh. how are you, how are you feeling right now i can imagine it's a very difficult place for you to be in with everything that's going on i'm feeling i'm feeling hyper exposed i'm a pisces so i like what i like and i've got very comfortable with my say fifty thousand platform i i've got a great management team who strategize with me to make me the most money from that space so business-wise I was just happy I was just comfortable and in the last two days I think I've gained 70,000 followers and I'm just a bit I'm, I'm a bit shaky I'm a bit and I keep trying to remind people like acclimatize yourself to my space because um uh I'm I'm not new to this and I'm very frank and I'm very upfront um and and you know yeah, but aside from being exposed, I also understand that for my work to have the largest impact, this is kind of how it has to be. So it's a double-edged sword. It's like, okay, I want to teach people and change the world, but I don't get to do that whilst hiding in a telephone box, you know? You have to step out into the light. And and I'm very, I'm very nervous. Um, but thus far, as hard as it's been, I've lived my life like an open book. And so... I trust that those who join me on this journey now will respect the fact that like you get what you get because I have I just have no airs and graces about me whatsoever and I would rather my platform always be a little smaller but far truer than have 10 million followers who if I breathe wrong they're going to cancel me you know does that make sense I hope it does <laughs> that makes complete sense and, and you're totally right in that if you start there with that level of honesty then there's there's nowhere that anyone can break you down from and I think 
I think it's an incredible place to get to actually, because I think especially as women, we're so conditioned to think that we've got to hold up this ideal version of ourselves. Not that you're anything less than ideal, but you're very truthful and raw and you're not kind of sugarcoating stuff for the benefit uh, of the male gaze or anyone's opinions. But uh, then I think we're all complicit in this patriarchy that wants us to be like, oh, I'm so quiet and sweet and, you know, uh, I don't have an opinion about anything. Do you know what, though? I always tell people that <laughs> that is maybe the one place in my life that I have privilege. And in a very backwards way, I am a dark skinned black woman. I I, I, I'm, I, I, I'm never operating under the male gaze because the male gaze is never looking at me. I am never the most beautiful. I'm never the smartest. I'm never the richest in, in that gaze of the patriarchy. So that means I get to live on the outskirts and just run amok. And I love it because I've never felt I need to be sexy because the world has never told me I was sexy. So I, I just, I literally just get to hang out in like staying tracksuit bottoms and be myself. And, but sometimes I do think that is my privilege because I've never had to pretend to be anyone else because by proxy of my physicality, I cannot do that. And so where some women find themselves coming into themselves at 30, 40, like from my mid twenties, I just had to be realistic about what I was and what I wasn't and what there was to gain from not being what people expected me to be. Um, and, and, and that's maybe like how I use my adversity to my advantage and just go all out because to be fair, when it comes to being a black woman, no one's ever really expecting anything of you other than the most negative thing. So I just, I feel like the world is my playground in some respect. That is such, that's so interesting you said that. And you've just reminded me, I should have thought about this part in the book where you talk about how when you were younger, like you never felt like you were attractive because boys never fancied you or never treated yeah. you in that way. And that, that was your first inkling to thinking, I'm never going to have children I, I I read that bit and I was like fuck that's that's so sad like that's yeah. and, and that could you talk a bit more about those experiences as a young black woman obviously I I didn't experience that yeah um coming up like so yes there's racism but one thing the black community still struggles with is colorism so the lighter skinned you are as a black person the more you can pass a slightly exotic you're held up as more beautiful. I can't pass as anything but like proper Caribbean, proper African. I also don't feel like I need to assimilate. I don't mind wigs and weaves, but it's just not to my taste. So I'm also very black in the way I wear my hair. Like I'm very natural in that respect. And that meant from a young age, I was never deemed as attractive because we have such problems in, in the black community. These problems are framed by white supremacy and, and European beauty standards. But we have such problems within the black community that a girl like me just never thought about getting married because no, no one. Oh, my gosh. I used to get pushed out of Kish Chase. Like I wasn't even allowed to play that game because in, in, in the space I lived, like I was I was I was the opposite of beauty. I was like the ugliest kid ever. And so even thinking about kids, I just didn't do it because from like six, seven years old, you know, no boy wants to play kiss chase with you. So even in your young mind, you're putting two and two together and, and getting the fact that, oh, well, you know, I don't really know how kids are made yet, but I see people being together and I kind of think no one wants to be with me. So that just gets sidelined. And that is even talking about it now. It's so 
it's so deep and it's so very traumatic and already I've lit I've had videos from black women in tears over this book because they they've never been able to see themselves in a story and it's it's just really really raw yeah I I can imagine that it's it must feel so incredible because as you see said one of the things that in the book you're like you just don't see women like me we are have not been platformed our voices are not heard so these stories exist mm-hmm. but they exist in these really small pockets where people don't feel like they can talk about it and colorism as you say is like a subset of racism where it doesn't get as it doesn't get as much airtime, but it's just as insidious and it's just as as cruel. Um, I'm sure you must talk about this a bit a bit later on in the book. But when you're bringing up your children who have the same complexion as you, mm. are you finding it that you're being so much more vocal? I imagine that you are. And and do you think there are other tools apart from your book that that feature these stories and that look out for for young boys and girls who who are dark skinned. It's so funny that you would say. Literally, as you said that, I've got my daughter's storybook. It's on my table. It's called Solway, and it's by Lapita, the actress, and it's illustrated by Vashti Harrison. And it's the first children's book I have ever had the pleasure of reading that specifically talks about colorism. And reading it to my daughter has been a revelation because my daughter is slightly fairer than me and she notices it. And I'm already trying to raise her to be a slightly fairer black woman who doesn't go out and without knowing it, throws a microaggression on the woman that looks like me, her own mum. And Solway, she like she reads it and she's like, oh, mummy, like you're Solway. Solway's like as dark as night. And I'm like, the dawn coming up and she's like but that doesn't mean that we're not all the same that doesn't mean that everyone shouldn't love us equally so I would say for any black people listening for, for any parent listening and this is this is perhaps the problem I was just about to recommend that book to only black parents no for any parent listening please buy Solway it is absolutely amazing um what other tools uh so many I just think I don't think colorism has been explored enough yet, even in literature, to be honest. Um, when I was growing up, it's slightly spoken about in one of my favorite books it's called The Coldest Winter Ever by Sister Soldier. But we still have, we still have like such a long way to go with that conversation. Is there, and I'm kind of clutching at straws on this one because it's just something that I've read somewhere, but is there something about colorism in that because often it operates within black communities? that because we're still fighting so hard to get white people to even see uh, black people and get rid of their own internalised white supremacy, that to highlight an argument, like an inter-community inter argument, might like undermine yeah, people's opinions. Yeah, completely. And it's not just, it is by no means just a black community issue. Colorism is rife in most, if not all Asian communities. I lived in India for three months and colorism there it just brought me to tears each night. Like this is for anyone that falls under the umbrella of BAME, colorism is a huge issue within our community. And and that's the thing, right? With writing this book, I was I'm I still am really scared because I've had to reveal things about my own community that I don't I don't want going public. I'm like writing these things, I'm like, I don't really want white people to read that because I don't want you to know that we have these internal struggles. And so I was constantly writing, thinking about the white gaze 
but the black gays always won because I was like, girl, if you do not tell the truth, this book is going to get into the hands of a 16-year-old girl who looks exactly like you and it's not going to change anything. So I really had to go against my innate feeling to remember the white gaze at all times and try to dilute some things. I had to just bite the bullet and be like, you know what, this may piss off some people in my community, but I'm here to change and save lives. And I and I think even the idea of being a pariah will be very, very worth it if I get to do the job I hope this book does. I, I can imagine that feels like great bravery because I mean even on my end I've done like a few posts talking about what's going on at the minute with the protests and George Floyd and all of the other atrocities and I'm getting bloody people having a go at me and so I can't even imagine it's just it's just ridiculous I, I can't imagine as a black woman how how you even cope with it and and how much shit you must get but then I hope that your community that follows you doesn't really because as you said your boundaries are strong and and they know who they're following what, yes, yeah I mean, I, they give they, I, the, they even this new community there has been no shit zero shit but I will say for people listening who either work in diversity, inclusion, anti-racism or anything quite triggering, there are so many tools at your disposal, especially on Instagram. I have got my keywords set to the hilt. There are certain words you cannot use on my page. I have disabled the ability to comment on my stories. I've disabled the ability for you to comment on a post of mine unless I'm following you back. And it's really important that when we're speaking about things of this nature, that we always think about our mental health, no matter our race. If you know you're about to rightfully, publicly tackle a very tricky but important subject, do not hesitate to put those boundaries up. I think now, I said 6,000 the other day, but I think my block list is at 7,000 people. And you don't have to speak to me in a tone that I don't appreciate for me to block you. If you followed me and I click on your profile and it makes me feel slightly funny, you're out of here. And I really want women to understand because we do this the most. We're like, oh, I've got this feeling in my tummy, but they've not said anything bad yet. So I actually feel guilty. Do not feel guilty. That feeling in your tummy is there for a reason. And if a profile just says, if a, a, a strange man was coming towards you in an alleyway, you would hot foot it. I really want women to start seeing their social spaces like their real lives. You do not have to entertain anyone that makes you feel uncomfortable. And they've recently in- introduced this on Twitter as well, haven't they? Where you can't always reply to. Yeah. Which is amazing. And it makes sense because, as you say, otherwise, sometimes comment sections get completely drowned out mm-hmm. and the important conversations gets lost. I wanted to ask you with Blackout Tuesday, this is kind of what we saw happening. The whole Black Lives Matter hashtag was flooded with black screens and the whole conversation was censored. Did mm. did you feel like there was something underhand at play there? What did you what was your opinion of everything that went on yesterday? I think it was I think it was so abhorrent because I think somewhere something got lost in translation. The first thing I saw about Blackout Tuesday was right, if you are white you should put up a black square um, so that black content creators' voices could be amplified, right? But then I think as time went on, a bit like Chinese whispers, that part, the most important part, the amplification of black voices got dropped out of the message. And so then as the hours trickled on, black people thought, oh, I, ju- I too need to post up this black square. 
Then to add insult to injury, these black squares were tagged with the really important hashtag Black Lives Matter. There, there is advice for protesters on that hashtag. There is information about where to donate money on that hashtag. And within hours, all of that information was swallowed by this black hole. And I was, I still am, I think you can hear by my voice, I'm heartbroken. I'm heartbroken because it just completely defeated the purpose. Um, and so my black square yesterday was a little bit different. I thought, no, 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 no. I'm going to give you a black square with my honest opinion because this is what needs to happen. That black square has been shared over half a million times. That post has gone on and taken wings by itself. But I think that that post was then only amplified because perhaps I was the only person in my space even talking. And it was supposed to be a group effort. It was supposed to be for all of my black content creator friends who are who feel like they're silenced and feel like they're underpaid well don't feel like are underpaid and I just think um I understand the sentiment but it, it just didn't do what it needed to do yeah and I mean it's difficult I never want to ask you um how to do something or anything and and I'm as a white person constantly have to be re-educating and checking myself and what we're doing but what was interesting was the people posting this black square and then no resources and not sharing anything else and (laughs) and it felt it felt so performative and 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 even now I question every time I post something is this performance is this ego what am I like what am I getting from it I I can't imagine how frustrating this time must be as a as a black person to be watching it and thinking fuck we could do something here and then it's it's not I mean you must feel like we've been here before so many times does this does anything about this feel any different does it feel like something is shifting do you feel Uh, like it's getting into the conscious of more people yeah absolutely I'm not going to be totally dire um this time does feel different this is the first time I've seen global protests for one black man's murder this is the first time I've seen that this is the first time I've seen and heard such noise on social media. Now, this isn't to say that I'm not a bit like, yeah, let's see what's happening in two weeks. But I also must give credit to this moment. Something has shifted. And, for and you know, even if things do become quieter in two weeks, millions of people have been informed. Millions of people now know what books to buy, what podcasts to listen to. So I'm not going to take away from actually even in its performativeness, how powerful this moment has been. Because even if that means 10 million people posted that square and only 1 million people really carry these tools and lessons with them, that's 1 million people we have on the side of understanding that black lives are not yet seen as equal. That is 1 million more people we have in this daily fight. I'm I'm not going to write that off. I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, you know, that's not good enough. That's brilliant. I have to say that is brilliant. Yeah, you're right. It, do, it does feel, it feels so powerful and it feels so big, but as you say, it might like dissipate. One of the things in your book that I I'm coming, want to come back to is w- with this movement and things we've seen, and, and I have to acknowledge as a white person that not every black person is going to be like, I think what you're doing is good. It, it's not a monolith. And I think the power in your book is reading this individual, really truthful, very funny story of uh, of a woman dealing with difficulties and, and all of these other things. I think that's what's going to help people to realize, oh fuck, like we need to stop treating black women, especially as though 
they are this one homogenous group. I imagine must come up against all the time that more than anything as a black woman, people just expect you to have like one idea about this every issue. Absolutely. And I, what's so interesting, she, he's not a woman, but using my partner as an example, he was raised in Nigeria. He was privately educated. Um, he has been born in a place where he is the majority. And when our relationship began, he didn't understand what a microaggression was. He was like, what's that? I don't, are you sure you're not making this up? So what people need to understand is um, there, there are black people today waking up alongside white people who, too, there are black people who are also only on their third day of understanding the damage that white supremacy has done. That is not me scorning them, but it's also the truth. And it's also me admitting that I, I don't I couldn't dare speak for every black woman. I couldn't dare. There are going to be black women who buy my book, who, who, who have experienced none of it, who may even rubbish it and say, God, this woman's talking a load of folly. That has not been my experience. And that is the truth. Because just like there are thousands of different versions of being a white woman, there are thousands of different versions of being a black woman. And someone commented today, they put up a post and it ended with something like, Love Candy's Brathwaite, the voice of black women. And I was like, no, 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 no. You're going to go ahead and edit that right now. That nothing makes me more angry because it lets white people off the hook. It lets white people think, oh, I follow this one great black girl, Candice. You know, I'm doing my bit. No, you are not. The same way you follow 50 white fitness influencers, you need to follow 100 black women because we are all going to say something different. We are all going to educate you in a different way. You, it's, there's not just one of us speaking for all of us. It's never been that way at all. And I think we're really seeing that coming through. And it was interesting. Leila Fassad did a post about how she hates the phrase diversify your feed. And I completely understand her reasoning and she said her points. And then I shared a post by another black woman who said, here's some black women to diversify your feed. <laughs> so I shared it on my story and I said, here's some people that you can follow to diversify your feed. And all these white women messaged me going, Leila Fassad said, you can't say that. And I was like, I, I know I've read that post, but this black woman has said that. And it's really interesting how we get caught up in the semantics of trying to say the right thing, but we don't always, we aren't always listening to those, every individual voice. It is, it is amazing to watch social media. I have to say, it's actually really weird. It's been, I can imagine for you, probably the one of the most draining times of your life. And, and, but now I'm thinking about it and talking to you, there is a conversation being engaged and, and people who read your book will be able to further deepen that real closeness and proximity to understanding what it means to live as a black person in in our society, as you say, like in Westernized culture. With the book, what who you said you were trying to keep always writing for the black for black voices and black minds. Did you have a specific person that you had as a reader, or and and who was that, and who were you writing for, or did you try to admonish yourself of anything and go, I've just got to get it on the page? Um, I, I was, the reader in mind, uh, was always a black 16 year old girl. Um, I spoke about the book earlier about the coldest winter ever. When I was at school, I was about 14. That book was so popular. Our headmistress banned it. And when I was writing my book, I was like, I want my book to be so good. It just gets banned in secondary schools. Not like, not banned because it's bad, but like kids are like not even focusing on their maths because everyone's passing this book around. And so I, again, I had to like just shut off the idea of the white gaze and just connect with the person I feel is going to take the most from the book. 
It's important that everyone reads the book, but it is a young black woman who is going to take the most from the book. So, you know, that was always the person I held in mind whilst writing. Um, and are you excited at, when your daughter's at the age where she can read it? Are you, are you excited to give her the book or is that something you thought about in the future? Yeah, completely. Um, my dedication to my children at the front is so, it's the first page and sometimes it's people's favourite. Um, and because it's, it's very true. And should life go as I would hope, I should die before them. And I would like this to be part of my legacy to them that, you know, hopefully it's one of many books I get to write. But I want them to know that, you know, mum is forever in their ear. Mum always has their corner. And I really hope my my daughter gets moments of of being able to like puff out her chest and be like, do you know who I am? Do you know who my mum is? Like, I really want that because I, I see I see um, uh, middle class white women get to do that all the time. I forget the term for it. There's a term for it. But, you know, I want my children to be able to use my name to open doors. White people have been doing totally. that for centuries. A hundred percent. You want them to be able to access nepotism. Yes, that's the word. Uh, no I completely agree and it's something that needs to be it needs to you need to have access to which is kind of I wanted to say this about the book but I couldn't find out the right way to say it which is you were saying it's a difficult time to be gaining and garnering an audience of people to be finding you but I kind of wanted to say like don't feel guilty like think about this like slight leverage that you might be getting now, it, it would probably wouldn't even match to some of the nepotism, nepotism that white authors would have had for fucking no reason. Um, Girl, and that, so it, that is the truth, Anoni. Yes, we love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't feel if there is any kind of like, you feel like, oh fuck it, people shouldn't be looking. I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. I went to a really interesting talk actually at my boyfriend's work that was about um, like gender equality in finance sectors. And there was this woman who was like, I don't care if some of the women that I hire aren't as qualified as some of the men because every single man before me got hired on the basis of the fact that he was so-and-so rather than because he was good at his job and everyone was like and I loved it I thought that was so true it was like sometimes like not that yours is that way around but like sometimes we've just got to be like recognize where structures have not favored us and they favored people 20 times shitter than us you know? Yeah, oh, complete, oh, completely, which is, you know, why I was I, I was trying to run away from this book idea, because honestly, um, so it, all the other proposal I, I did, it was like, oh, come back when your social media following is bigger. You know, it, it just felt very like, oh, my God, but I've seen white women write mummy books and they can't even write. Or, you know, you hear rumors about them using ghostwriters. And it was absolutely crushing. And so you're right. I'm going to puff out my chest today. I think um, the fact that so many people who have this innate privilege or certain powers mentioning my book, may- maybe that is my little bit of payback. Maybe, you know, the powers that be are like, girl, you need to take a rest. It's time for those powers to do the work because, you know, you've done all you can do. So thanks for saying that, actually. I- I'm happy about that. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're completely welcome. I think it's completely true. And you've done the work in the book as well. If you didn't talk for like three weeks, I think that would be fine. Yeah. There's, there's enough to be getting <laughs> getting through in the book. And you spoke a little bit about how like traditionally within your family, parents and, and other families like yours, parents would kind of be like, children have to be out of the room for these conversations. We're having adult conversations now. Mm. With your children, how what what is the channel of dialogue like? Like what kind of things, of course, you'll speak to them about race, but when it comes to conversations around feminism and 
and I know the kids are still quite young and like sexuality and things. How are those conversations being shaped in your household? And how has that changed between, you know, your generation and, and your parents and grandparents? Oh, it's changed so much. My, my, my dad and my granddad always encouraged me to have an opinion. But I think I think the females in my family would turn in their grave if they saw the way I was raising my children. My children absolutely get to have an opinion and their opinion is held in high regard in our house. So much so that my other half asked my daughter to like go upstairs and grab his phone. And she sighed and she was like, oh, dad, like, I just don't feel like going upstairs. And then I was just like, oh, like, come on, kid. Like, you're, not, you're, you're watching YouTube, just run upstairs. And he was, he sh- completely shut me down. He was like, no, she says she doesn't want to do it. And to be fair, I too am being lazy. My legs aren't broken. I'll go and get it. And like my mind just like blew open. I was like, yes. Dun, 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 dun. She, her own father is showing her in a really slick way. Like your word is, is bond. Your word is held in high regard. Your no means no. And especially that energy between a, a young girl and a man, I just, I really, really appreciate it. Um, in terms of any conversation my six-year-old brings to me, and trust me, she brings a lot. Nothing is off. She knows about periods. She knows how babies are made. She knows about um, gay rights. There's another great book, People Should Buy Their Kids. It's called Julian is a Mermaid. And it really, in a smart way, delves into the idea of like being transgender and gender fluidity. Nothing nothing is off the cards. I think with our young people, we may have to think about how we want to have a discussion, but all discussions need to be had for sure. I especially love that story because as you said, no means no. That is the highest level of consent. If she's going, no, I know what I want and I'm not fucking doing that right now. (laughs) And it's, you know, and that's not to say that if I say, Esme, go and clean your room, she doesn't get to say no in that moment. I understand I'm still her parent, but there are situations like where we're just being totally lazy cop-out parents. She gets to say that she doesn't want to facilitate our laziness. And we have to be okay with that because when we go out into the, when she goes out into the world, a world who is not going to hold her in high regard, a world who will not want to take her word for it, we need to know that we've done all we can in the house to remind her that she should always shout from the rooftop. I think I think it's so admirable. I'm not a parent yet, but I constantly think about this when it comes to parenting because I think we always think our own parents did the best they could with the tools they had at that time. Mm. But it seems to me now so much of like the way that my mum brought me up was like through using shame as a vehicle to teach me about sex. So it'd be like, oh, be afraid of sex and be afraid of, because it was, that was her tr- trying to protect me of the world that she knew of how women would be treated in the world. Mm. And so it, I love hearing how the the evolution of these things change and how there's so much, I think you have a great respect with your children, which I I don't necessarily think respect was a two-way street before Mm. between parents and children. This is it. And again, you're not a mummy blogger, but when you talk about your children online, do you get that frustration of, I watch this from the sidelines, not necessarily on your account, but other mothers telling um, mum-splaining, I guess, how to do things. Is that something you have on your page or not too much? And what's your thoughts on, you're, you're, you're talking about your journey to being a mother. It's not, you're not instructing anyone. It's very much like, as you say, it's part memoir, part manifesto. It's not, but it's not like, this is what you do. Uh, other people, 
other people do speak like that. What's your stance on those kind of conversations? And how do you mediate if someone does try to tell you that you're doing something wrong? Or Oh, uh, like oh in my social space, if you tell me I'm doing something wrong, you usually just get bumped out. I don't have time for that. Oh, and then there are sometimes, and this is really important, tone. Tone, especially in written word, is a really hard thing to get across. And there are some people who I completely disagree with who have approached me with such a gracious tone, I actually entertain their argument. I, it actually makes me think about the decision I've publicly made. And so that, so that's not to say that I'm going to shut down every kind of opinion, but I have absolutely no time for those mums or parents who just want to be like, you're giving your kids formula milk and that's so shit. Like, gone by. I had sepsis with my firstborn. If I had breastfed my child, she would have died. And so it's always really important to understand that there is context to every choice a mother is making. And just because we are in these social spaces, it doesn't mean you get to brain vomit your dull opinion on someone's page. But even where there has been that kind of conversation regarding breastfeeding, whatever, those who are vehemently against my choice about formula feeding when they have come with the correct tone, I have entertained them. And so although I'm not for telling people what to do, if you have a difference of opinion, I think tone is really important. I, I completely agree. And obviously with your Make Motherhood Diverse space that you created, that would have been, I imagine, in response to being like, this place is whitewashed and it's looking to the same and people aren't feeling like they're heard is that do you love doing that side of things is that something you find really um like fruitful and what are people's responses when they do get to feel like they're finally hearing a story that looks like their own it is make motherhood diverse is like my little drug it is it gives me such a rush to hear and and not just women there are people who call themselves people they um who come to that page and, and, and there's just a sense of love. There's just a sense of community, a sense of understanding, a sense of willing to learn. Um, and I had no idea, no idea it would grow into what it's become because I've worked with two major brands now who have used Make Motherhood Diverse as like a consultancy space of sorts. They are like, we understand that you have the unique way of communicating with different kinds of mothers and parents within this industry we are casting for such and such an ad will you help us and it's amazing then to inspire those women who don't have massive platforms or would never have thought because they're in a wheelchair that they are deserving of this space on the billboard it's been my utter privilege to say to them this major brand wants to work with you and pay you this much money and just to just to see that just to see those parents and mothers and people be celebrated um uh like it, it just makes me it makes me cry almost it, it's such a wonderful space well it's lovely because you're not being a gatekeeper you're you're paying it forward despite having as we've already spoken about been not given the same application as people from the get-go mm. and then you're even giving it further so I think that's I think it's so beautiful the, one of the kind of final things I want to talk about, because I love it, is that the, in the beginning of your book, you speak about abortion. Mm. And I, I just love that that was in your motherhood book. I think it's so 
pressing. I think it's so important. I wonder if I could ask you, what was it that made you think about this is going to be where the story begins? And and were you worried about writing about that? I, I don't think I was worried because I'm very public about my abortion. But I think for specifically for the black women reading, I wanted to lead with something like that because in our community, abor- an abortion, no less you speaking about your abortion publicly, can quite frankly be the mark of the beast. And I just wanted to lead with that story so that women who have had abortions or in any way in their life feel like a portion of their life is shrouded with secrecy. I want them to read it and understand that from the get-go, I do not suffer fucking fools gladly. I always tell the truth. I live in my truth. I am a very happy mum of two now, but I would have hated my life as a mother then. And I, I just think it sets a tone that I've never read anywhere in a motherhood book. Like, oh, we're going to talk about being a mum, but we're going to lead with her not being a mum. I just think it was a way, it was like TNT to like blow open the barn doors and just set pace for the fact that this is going to be a little bit of a book with a difference. And we really are going to deep dive on the things that maybe the world wants women to keep a secret. And also to remind women that you are not your secret. There are so many women I know, myself included, who perhaps for many years have stopped what they thought was the worst of their lives, getting them the best bits of their lives. And it sucks because men don't do that. Men don't do that. Look at the bloody Cosbys and Epsteins of the world. Men never move thinking that the most fucked up shit in their mind, whether knowingly or unknowingly, is going to stop them from living their best life. Why do women do that? Of course, not to the degree of sexual assault, but something as personal as an abortion is going to stop you from like then going on and getting married or, or, or putting yourself to live a life online. Screw that. I just wanted the book. If, if my book could have started with someone shoving their middle finger in your face, that chapter was that. <laughs> I think it's so powerful and also importantly like in the narratives as you just said that we don't hear that if you google something pregnancy like I've had pregnancy scares before it's all positive it's like congratulations Mm. you're gonna have a baby and it's not it's never neutral and I would say that like every pregnancy probably is 50 50 I want it 50 I don't I don't Mm. I don't think that the majority of pregnancies are wanted and that is the narrative that we're fed unless you're like a, a teenager or whatever when it's like then it's even more shameful but yeah. I, I agree with you that I think abortion is something spoken about more widely it's so common and um as you say like that extra level of shame if you are a black woman who's perhaps going to be shamed more than, than that to hear someone speaking about it there's been so many occasions in my life where I've read something that I've never seen anyone put down before whether it's about like eating disorders or mm. thoughts you've had about whatever. And you're right to read it and see it and see someone have no shame is one of the most powerful things that you can do. So I'm sure so many women will be really grateful that you did write that piece and that it's there for the world to see. I do hope so. I do hope so. (laughs) Is there anything that you, having read the book, written the book and now that it's out, is there anything else that you wish that you you could have included? I know that's a bit of an annoying question. Uh, No. No, and my 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 copy editors. Everyone really praises me for this, but I am a, a I, I I'm I I I don't I don't hold my words like a kid. I am very like, how do we get to the point 
in the least workout possible. And so I am very good at leaving things on the cutting room floor and never thinking about them again. Also, even this book, I, I constantly refer to it as my surrogate child. I, I was pregnant for a really long time, goddamn 12 months writing this thing. And now it's out there. I, I've been the, the surrogate mum that has signed up for no connection. I don't get to see this kid. I don't get to cuddle it. I don't get to lean over someone's shoulder as they're holding my kid and, and tell people, please don't judge my baby like that. Please don't. Although I'm not your baby mother has Candy's grass weight on the top. The book never belonged to me. It never, it, <laughs> like, it's, it's never mine. It was never mine. I write my things and I just hope they find good homes. So for me, I think, May, I, I think everything I wanted to say is, has, has been with me and has, has now flown the nest. And what a beautiful piece of history as well that you could reflect on if you ever did want to revisit. I, I just think it must be such a nice thing to have. And I love that it's an amazing thing to be proud of, but to speak with such pride is, is the biggest reward, I imagine, for having worked so hard. Yeah, yeah. I thought, I don't know. No, I'm not going to lie. And and it could perhaps be a possibility. I, I want to be a Sunday Times bestseller. I like all that stuff. I love ego. I love Gucci shoes. I like stuff. And that's, that's another thing women should be allowed to say. I like titles. I like, I'm a human. But also, I've lost stuff. I've lost people. And so I'm equally open to just the feeling of pride being the prize. And I am, I am like, I'm a, I'm a Duracell bunny of pride right now. No one, no one can chat shit to me. I feel great. <laughs> you, but you should, and I'm, I'm really smiling. It's annoying that we can't see each other, but it's, it's so true that like you should get to enjoy. And I think we lose this so often is just enjoying the feeling that we're feeling. I'm really guilty of when I'm feeling really happy, suddenly going, <gasps> I bet something bad's going to happen. Yeah. And then you like miss out yeah. on the joy. Honestly, that is my, my therapist. Oh my God. That is my constant fight between me and my therapist because I've suffered such trauma from such early on, such an early age. My default is to lead with the worst. Oh, there's a pain in my breast. It's stage five breast cancer. I'm dying tomorrow because I've had such traumatic things happen to me. It's my way of trying to protect myself. I, I don't ever want to feel, sometimes I feel like when really bad stuff happens to us, it's sometimes the shock more than the actual thing. And I, I've got into this habit of trying to believe that not being able to feel the shock will protect me. But my therapist is like, no, all that does is dilute your rightful joy. You cannot live your life like that. And so this book coming out right now, I'm really working with my therapist to just lean into the joy. Bad shit has happened, and if you live long enough, it will happen again. But it is not happening now. Is there anything else that you wish I'd asked you, or that you would you wanted to speak on? Not at all. I feel I feel full up. You... <laughs> oh, good. So I, I absolutely love talking to you. I feel really full up and smiley too. If anyone wants to find you online or any other work, obviously buy your book. It's sold out right now, but you can still order it, can't you? Yeah, um, they're going to restock like today so you could probably buy it now it's on amazon 
it's foils, it's waterstones. And I'm primarily on Instagram. Um, my name is Candy Sprathway on there. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me and sharing your story. I've absolutely loved it. And I'm going to finish. I am not your baby mother. I'm going to finish it today. Oh, I think. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.